Will you turn with me, please, to the passage which we read in Psalm number 34? Psalm number 34. I'd like us to consider what we have in verse 18 tonight. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as are of a contrite spirit. The Lord is nigh or near unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. My dear friends, I dare say, you don't need me to tell you that Christianity is a religion of the heart, fundamentally. One of the great tragedies of life in our beloved country in Scotland in the past 120 years has been a progressive slide into nominality in religion. Nominality. It's largely killed the church as a spiritual force in Scotland. Someone has put it well when they said, persecution has killed thousands, but nominality or formalism, mere formalism, without heart, without the spirit of God, has killed churches. For sure, heart religion is written large over the Psalms. The Psalms speak of Christ and his church. They are Christ's Psalms in a real sense. They were, of course, composed by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in specific historical situations. Though, if you look at uh, one in, in, in Hebrews chapter 3, for instance, this puts the Psalms in, in perspective, I think. In chapter 3 and verses 7 and 8, this is what we read concerning Psalm 95. Christ is a son over his own house, whose house are, are we, if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Wherefore, wherefore, wherefore as the Holy Ghost saith, today if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness. That, that alerts us to the fact that the Psalms are a work of the Holy Spirit. So they have their historical situation, but never forget that they are inspired by the Holy Spirit. And therefore they are, in a real sense, the Psalms of God, the Psalms of the Lord Jesus Christ. In one way or another, they all point forward to Christ and his church. They reflect Christian experience. So we should, never be, uh, we should never be ashamed or inhibited by the thought that these are Old Testament compositions. They are as fresh as the fact that they are come from Christ himself through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Well, in the case of Psalm 34, it was apparently composed after an incident in David's life, according to the title, that is. He was under threat from King Saul. We have the circumstance recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 21 and verse 10 and following. He flees from Saul to Gath, where he feigns madness for the fear of the king of Gath. 
But it was a hard time for David. There are hard times for the people of God in which they may find it very difficult to praise the Lord. As in such times in which we live, in which there can be hard times to praise the Lord, difficulties. But whatever the afflictions experienced by the child of God, there is to be continual praise, because that's how the psalm starts. I will bless the Lord at all times. I, his praise shall continually be, continually be in my mouth. That is something that obviously should be true of every one of us, every one of you. Whatever your adversities, whatever the difficulties there are, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Now, adversities may be very testing. They are testing. But they're not themselves a sign that the Lord has forsaken the believing soul. This was true, of course, in Jesus' experience. And it will be true in the experience of his people. At any rate, we no doubt have David's personal experience here described in verses 4 to 10. This provides abundant encouragement to others, to us, to praise the Lord. We're invited to count our blessings and to learn by experience that the Lord is gracious. We read this in verse 8. Let destruction come up. Beg your pardon, verse 8, verse Psalm 34. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Now, all this clearly is the experience of David, but reflects the experience of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is speaking through him, and it, it reflects the experience of the Lord himself, though he was perfect. At every point, he proved the goodness of his heavenly father and likewise his people. Believing souls will prove and are to prove his goodness also. Naturally, there are things to learn which are spoken of in the remaining part of the psalm from verse 10, 11 to 22. And incidentally, there are 22 verses in this, in this psalm and every verse in the original Hebrew, begins with a consecutive order of the Hebrew letters, because the Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. Anyway, that, by the way. But here's a question. What is a godly life? Three things are spoken here which enter into the life of the, those faithful to the Lord. Your con conversation will be wholesome. We have this in verse 13. But as for me, beg your pardon, keep my, thy tongue from evil and thy slips from speaking guile. And then you will follow a righteous lifestyle. We have it in the following verse. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And thirdly, you'll always be prayerful. We have it in the verse that follows that one. The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears are open unto their cry. A mark of the Christian is to be found in this, crying out to the Lord. Verses 16 and 17, the face of the Lord is against them that do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth, and delivereth them out of all their troubles. 
verse 6 as well. The poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. You will cry out to the Lord in your need, in your consciousness of sin, in your feelings of unworthiness, and in your struggles against the world and against the flesh and the devil and against sheer human pride, which besets us too often. So the themes of repentance and humility are very much themes of this psalm. Here we are told that the Lord hears the cry of the righteous and delivers them out of their troubles. But what marks the righteous? What is the attitude? What is their attitude or disposition before the Lord, the righteous? I'd like to consider this fast day of acute communion season, what we have in verse 18. The Lord is nigh or near to those that are a broken heart and saveth such are as of a contrite spirit. I'd like to open this up with two questions. And the first question is this. What is your experience of the broken heart? Now, it's true that the Lord is never far from any of us in the sense that he is omniscient. And in him, as Paul says to the Athenian philosophers, we live and move and have our being. It's true that we cannot escape him. Even though we make our bed in hell, we cannot escape him. But when the Spirit here speaks of the Lord being near, in verse 18, the Lord is near, nigh or near. When the psalmist, when the Spirit speaks of the Lord being near, it's with reference to a specific state of a soul. And the specific state is broken heartedness. He is near in a special way, a gracious way, a comforting way, a blessed way to those who have a broken heart. So my question is, what is your experience of the broken heart? What does it mean? Well, we don't automatically think of a broken heart as being good. I mean by that this, it may refer to some profound disappointment. People speak about this perhaps, we might say superficially, that they were brokenhearted about some profound disappointment, perhaps the loss of a loved one. Maybe the failure of ambitions or aspirations of one sort or another. Certainly the breakdown of relationships may be heartbreaking. These are not considered good or welcome. That is true. Again, we do appreciate those who help us out when we suffer a great loss that breaks our hearts. But if we were as sensitive to our sin before God as we are to those other temporal experiences, which may, humanly speaking, be heartbreaking, well, then we'd have a far greater sense, surely, of our dependence upon the Lord and the comforts of his presence. 
And that is more important than any comfort or presence in a temporal loss, a merely temporal loss. So what is the brokenheartedness that brings the Lord near to a soul? I want to open this up by suggesting five things, actually. First is this. There is brokenheartedness that fully recognizes our sin as sin against God. Think of Psalm 51. This is well known to you. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, done this evil in thy sight. Do we recognize sin in all its evil and in all its wickedness? Will the Lord draw near to a soul who says, I am not so wicked. I'm not so wicked. Or there are a lot of bad people in the world. There are a lot of bad people in the world, but I would never do anything as bad as is done by such. Will the Lord draw near to a soul who says such things? that takes lightly the reality of sin in their lives. Psalm 51 says, A broken heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Do we show a burden or do, do we know a burden of sin and feel ashamed? This the Lord desires to see in us. There is a brokenheartedness that fully recognizes our sin, sin against the Lord. But then secondly, that I would suggest this, there is a brokenheartedness that recognizes the lack of real holiness in one's life. Are you really heartbroken over a lack of, a lack of desire, the desire for and the practice of holiness? In other words, the want of being like the Lord Jesus Christ and reflecting his character. That cannot be a matter of indifference. Cannot be a matter of indifference. Surely, the Lord draws near to those who feel themselves not to be as like the Lord Jesus Christ as they desire to be or should be. But we remember he gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Why? That they might advance in holiness and in likeness to himself. So there is a brokenheartedness that recognizes the lack of holiness. Do you have that brokenheartedness tonight? Then there's a third thing I would suggest, and it is this. There's a brokenheartedness which is convicted about lack of in prayer and in eagerness, or we might say enthusiasm about the things of the Lord. I mean, we can be so cold about the ordinances, whether we think of them in public terms or in private terms. We can be so cold about the fact that we don't have an eagerness or an enthusiasm for these things. So, little attentiveness to prayer times, private 
devotions, to public worship even, or making public worship a substitute for the want of private de devotion. That is one thing, but are we convicted of it? And are we inclined to cry out in agony that it is so, when it is so? But the Lord draws near to such brokenheartedness where there is brokenheartedness over such things. But then there is perhaps brokenheartedness that is conscious of little success in resisting the evil one. Does it break your heart that so often the evil one seems to get away his way with you? When that troubles your heart, when that troubles your heart, surely the Lord is near with his deliverances. And then fifthly, I would suggest there is brokenheartedness that grieves over the prevalence of sin in the world. Not just in your own life, but also in the world. Is your heart full of grief that Christ and his word are trampled under foot of men? Does it affect your heart when you see men going on in sin? Do you cry out, it is time, Lord, for thee to work? For men have made void thy law. Is there a heartbrokenness that so many around us are careless or heedless uh, about Christ and about his ordinances, his person, glorious person and work, his law, his word, his teaching? What grief for sin is there in you, or either in you, or in the world? Well, where that is all felt, the Lord is near with his gracious presence. Where there is that broken heart over sin and its consequences in you or in the world, He knows our frames that we are dust, dear friends. It is those who feel themselves to be inadequate and unworthy that the Lord is near to bless. Remember the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. There's an example of a man who is brokenhearted. Which one? The Pharisee? No. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not as other men are. Like that man across there who's beating upon his breast the tax collector. He was conscious of his sin. Beat upon his breast, God be merciful to me, a sinner. But he went down to his home, justified. As James says in his letter, it is the man or woman who is brought low before the holy majesty of God, whom the Lord will lift up. If the Lord seems removed from you, or if the Lord seems removed from a church, you have to ask, you have to ask, 
What grief for sin is there in that individual or in that body? What heartbrokenness for want of faithfulness and consecration in that individual or in that church? What awareness of the failing of failing the Lord? John Calvin put it so well. It is meet, he said, it is fitting that the faithful should be thus utterly cast down and afflicted that they may breathe again in God alone. Is this a missing ingredient from the modern church, the modern Christian profession? Does it account a lack of heartbrokenness over the realities of sin and their consequences? Does it account for or a languishing Christian or a languishing church? But things don't stop at just being heartbroken, you see. It's interesting how in more than one place the state of heartbrokenness goes with something else. And this is the second question tonight. And that is, what is your experience of the contrite spirit? I say that these things are brought together. Um, the broken heart and the contrite spirit elsewhere. For example, in Psalm 51 and verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. And in Isaiah 66, verse 2, to this man I will look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembleth at my word. Yes, we do well to tremble at the word. And it is those precisely who are of a poor and contrite spirit who do so. Are you trembling at the word? Is that your experience? No doubt to be contrite is to be penitent. This will be sorrow for sin, for all sin. What is a contrite spirit? Well, a person may be contrite when they think, when, they, when they've been found out for wrongdoing and brought to see it in all its gravity. Think of the little child caught in the act of doing something, telling a lie, for instance, or tail-bearing, taking something without permission and the lying or the like. Think of the grown-up caught in thinking ill of another or caught out in an offense or gossiping or harming someone else's character. There's a shame attached to it all. And regret or remorse in these cases may be the result. But there must also be a spirit of repentance. The Shorter Catechism beautifully defines the repentance, repentance unto life. What is repentance unto life? It is a saving grace, but in a sinner out of the true sense of his sin, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it and unto, unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. 
and how necessary repentance is, all the more with the reality of the serious matters of our state before a holy God when sin is exposed to us in all its heinousness. What in my life, ask yourself, what in my life brings shame upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his cause? It's not sufficient to be regretful, hardened criminal, May regret his crime when he's find out, found out, but regret isn't repentance. That isn't real contrition. It might be very selfish, simply the awkwardness and inconvenience and shame of being found out. So much of sin is like that. It conceals. And when we think of it, we may pause and think of the person sitting next to you and think, I wonder, I wonder about their secret sins. I wonder what they need to repent over. Oh, if we knew that. But if our own, your own. You can understand the awkwardness and inconvenience or shame of being found out. It's not the same as repentance, though. The criminal will only show true contrition when he shows it by determining not to repeat his bad acts, bad deeds, and to seek to make good his wrongs. Judas was remorseful at what he did in betraying the Lord, but it didn't lead to repentance. We distinguish these things. But this aspect of true repentance is illustrated in the case of Zacchaeus. Behold, Lord, the half of goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him full for it. And what did Jesus say to him? This day salvation is come to this house. What do we read in verse 18? The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Now, that is not to say that salvation is earned by our repentance, not at all. Salvation is all of grace, of course. But repentance is also necessary for the saved sinner. There needs to be repentance for sin. There is a constant call to repent of sin. All men everywhere are exhorted to repent. Because sin is an offense to God and to his law and will land a man in hell if it is not repented. That is the reality. It's a necessity for the sinner. Repentance and, and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thereby we give proof of the work of grace in our hearts and lives in dealing with indwelling sin. And as long as there's sin in the world, there needs to be repentance also for the saved sinner. We mentioned Isaiah 66 in verse 2. On this man, to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and that trembleth at my word.
Did you come out to the service tonight expecting to tremble at the word and expecting to have a challenge to be brokenhearted and contrite over sin in yourself and in the world? But let it be said, this, of course, is not the sum total of Christian experience. There's an unspeakable joy in the experience of grace and forgiveness of sin and the exercise of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And furthermore, the anticipation of glory to all who are his. In his day, Nehemiah encouraged the people. Being he reassured them. The joy of the Lord is your strength, he says. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The context of these words was what? In chapter 8 of Nehemiah, it was the weeping of the people who had heard the word of the Lord and had been convicted by it and were trembling under it. There is a time to repent. There is a time for tears. And there is a time for joy. When you think of what Christ has done, to save his people from their sins. He came from the eternal glory, from within the Godhead, took our nature to his divine nature, suffered and died in our nature. What for? To save us from our sins. So as we come to him, confessing our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We read in the Psalms again, weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Who will not joy when you think of the Savior and his work, his grace and his forgiveness, his compassion and his continuing intercessory work and his promise of his coming again? Yet at the beginning of the Beatitudes, he teaches that the poor in spirit and the mourners are blessed. After all, it is such who have realism about life and this sad fallen world, a world which needs this balm as they do. He healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. Psalm 147 verse 3, Jesus speaking to us through these psalms. He healeth the broken heart and bindeth up their wounds. As we read in the last verse of Psalm 34, the Lord redeems the soul of his servants and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. None of those who trust in him shall be condemned. But let me just say, that if none of you are going to be condemned, then all of you must come by repentance and faith to Christ and the cross. Lay yourself upon him and seek that he should save you from your sins, should cleanse you of the sin, should send his Holy Spirit that you may be overcomers of the world and the flesh and the devil overcomers of sin and its consequences, 
overcomers of all that is an offense in your life to the life of godliness. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. May the Lord bless these thoughts upon his word. Let us pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank thee for thy word and pray that thou would write it upon our hearts and enable us, Lord, not merely to be hearers of thy word, but doers also, that we would be of us poor and a contrite spirit, trembling at thy word, and yet rejoicing that there is a salvation full and free for sinners such as we are. But Lord our God, we would put our trust in the Lord, in whom alone there is salvation, forgiveness, cleansing, and a hope of heaven. So hear us now, Lord, we pray, forgive us all sin, for Jesus' sake. Amen. <laughs>